so glad that you're here with us. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Luke. If you're new with us, uh, we've taken the book of Luke and we're just going by chapter by chapter, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph as we study what God has to teach us through Luke's writing and his account of the person and work of Christ. So that's where we are. We're in Luke chapter 8. We're making our way through. We're going to be at the very end of Luke chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 40 and work through the end of the chapter. So if you do the math, that's 17 verses. We've got a lot of work to do this morning, so hang with us. We've got, we're going to see some incredible things about the person and the work of Christ as we finish out Luke chapter 8. But I want you to notice something. As we've been studying through the book of Luke, it's been incredible to see the person and work of Christ. But even as we've only been in Luke chapter 8 for the past several weeks, Luke has something he wants to communicate to us through the word. And he's trying to communicate to us, even in chapter 8 alone, the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So we saw a couple weeks ago his power and authority over the material world when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, and he rebuked the storm, and it ceased. We saw Jesus' amazing power and authority over the material world. Last week, Pastor AJ came up and continued to remind us of the power and authority of Jesus as Jesus healed a demon-possessed man and cast a legion of demons out from him. We saw there Jesus' power and authority, not only over the material world, but over, over the demonic world. Now we come to the end of chapter 8 this morning, and what we're going to see this morning, we're going to continue to see Jesus' power and authority, but we're going to see it over the physical world as Jesus heals an incurable disease and raises a young girl from the dead. What Luke is trying to communicate to us in the book of Luke, particularly in chapter 8, is that Jesus is God. We're going to see his deity, we're going to see his authority, and we're going to see his lordship over the world the flesh, and the devil. Our greatest enemies, Jesus conquers, all in one chapter, and we get to see that this morning. In this text, as we come to the end of chapter 8, we're going to see two stories of two individuals who were desperate and in need. Two stories that are intertwined together of two individuals who were incredibly desperate, and they brought their needs to Jesus so that he might demonstrate his power and his authority. So I want to start with a question for us this morning just to get you thinking a little bit. When is the last time you have been in a place of complete desperation? We've all been there, right? Some more severe than others, at times more severe than at other times. But when is the last time you've been in a place of complete desperation, where you were in a circumstance, you were in a situation, and you simply didn't have the answer? You didn't know how you were going to get out. You didn't know what you were going to do. You were up against a wall. You knew there was no way to knock down the wall. There was no way to go around it. There was no way to go over it, that you were in a situation that you couldn't solve. This morning, we're going to see two individuals that were desperate. They were in a situation that they couldn't solve. And so they ran up to Jesus in complete dependence and hope and need and presented their need to Jesus. Because oftentimes, isn't it true, that when we find ourselves in a place of desperation, what happens? It either causes us to run to Jesus or to run away from Jesus. But God loves to bring us to a place where our only answer is him. Don't you hate that? 
God's continually putting us in places where our only option is to trust in him. And we're going to see this morning two people in place of desperation that ran up to Jesus to trust him with his power and authority over their situation. So let's pray together and ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in it to teach us more about you and more about ourselves. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us insight this morning through your word to understand you better and to be conformed more into the image of Christ. Would you do that this morning as we continue to worship? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's interesting as we come to this passage of Scripture at the end of Luke chapter 8, the synoptic gospels, which are the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all talk about these two stories intertwined together. The healing of a woman who had an issue of blood and the resurrection of a young girl from the dead. And all three of the gospel writers put these two stories together. They're intertwined together, just as we'll see this morning. And I think there's a reason for that, because you're going to see some things through their similarities that communicate some things about faith, that communicate some things about God's power, and that communicate some things about having a desperate need that only Jesus can solve. So we'll see these two stories work together and intertwine together as we work through this text. So turn with me to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, and just look at the first couple verses here. Let's dive in. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. Now remember last week that Jesus and the disciples got in a boat and they traveled onto the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And here in our text, it says, now when Jesus returned, he's returning from where he was in the region of the Gerasenes. You remember last week when he healed the man possessed by demons. Now Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat. They travel back across the Sea of Galilee and they come back to the region of Capernaum where Jesus had already done a multitude of miracles Jesus had already healed a leper. He had already caused a man to raise from the dead. He had healed multiple sicknesses, and he had cast out many demons. Word was out about this healer, this miracle worker, not only about what he was doing, but about what he was teaching. Nobody had heard teaching like this. Nobody had seen anyone do miracles like this. So as word got out, the crowds began to thicken. And as Jesus and his disciples returned on the boat to the region where he's uh, arriving to, you see that the crowds pressed in on him. There were a multitude of people. This, the Greek word for pressed in here literally means to drown. Jesus was drowning in a sea of people. He was being choked out by the crowds, figuratively speaking. That there were so many, I don't know if you've ever been to Uh, a concert, or if you've ever been in an environment or a venue where there were so many people that you couldn't even step to the left or right because there were people in front of you, behind you, to the left of you, to the right of you, that's the scene that we have as Jesus returns into this area. Jesus is with his disciples. The crowds are growing. They want to get a glimpse of this man that can heal. They want to hear this man's teaching that they've never heard anything like it. Maybe they have their own diseases that they're bringing to Jesus so that possibly they could be healed. And as the crowds were growing, we see in the text that a man named Jairus comes up to Jesus. 
and gets his attention. What was Jairus' issue? Jairus had an incredible need, didn't he? He had only one daughter. She was about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now, if we understand the original meaning of the text, it's, we read it as she was dying. The original meaning was she was on her last breath. This wasn't like she was in ICU with a chance of recovering. It was like she was in hospice care at the very end of her life. This young girl of 12 years old lay dying, and Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. Well, what do we know about Jairus? We know that he was a ruler of the synagogue, and the rulers of the synagogues, they took care of all the services at the synagogue. They oversaw the building, this actual physical space of the synagogue. This was a person of prominence and power. He was a ruler. He would have been well-known in the community. He would have been well-liked in the community. We know a lot of things about Jairus. We know that he was uh, a ruler. We know that he had some level of authority. We know that he had prestige. We know that he was probably wealthy. But what Jairus didn't have was the power to heal his daughter. Jairus was a desperate man. And though he himself was a man of prestige and power, he ran and fell on his face before Jesus. Is this the first time we've seen that in Luke? No, great answer. You remember? The leper came and fell at his feet before Jesus. The immoral woman came and fell at her feet, at his feet before Jesus. We saw last week the demoniac man fell at his feet before Jesus. And now we see a dignified ruler who comes with a need and desperation and he falls at the feet of Jesus to make his need known. And the principle here, and I think we all understand it, is that desperation brings humility, doesn't it? When we're in a situation that we can't get out of, it humbles us to seek help, maybe in places that we wouldn't have sought it. Desperation brings humility. Humility, need, and desperation was what was going on in Jairus' heart at this moment in time. I want you to put yourselves in Jairus' position just for a, mom just for a moment. He was a prominent man, he was a religious man, he was a successful man, and he was a family man. But he couldn't do the one thing that mattered to him in this moment, and that was to raise his daughter from the dead. This is the first of two stories, and now we're about to see the second. Look with me at verses 43 and 44. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, him being Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. It's like the record stops. We're, we're going on this narrative with Jairus and his daughter, and all of a sudden, we're interrupted by this woman who comes up and gets Jesus' attention. In this crowd of people, how she got his attention, I don't know. Actually, she wasn't trying to get his attention. She was trying to come up behind him and simply touch the fringe of his garment in hopes that she would be healed. You see, this woman had a chronic case of dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and it had lasted for 12 years. She was incurable. She had spent all of her money trying to be healed, and no physician could take care of her issue. I want you for a moment to put yourself in her shoes. What would that 
have been like. And we understand from the history of the Jewish people, if you go back and read Leviticus 15, you can see very clearly that this woman with her issue would have been ceremonially unclean. She wouldn't have been able to go in public. She wouldn't have been able to touch another human being because by doing so, it would have made them unclean. She would have been socially outcast. Not only did she have a physical issue, she had a social issue. She had a financial issue. She was broke. She had spent all of her money on physicians. So I was trying to think, how can we identify with this woman? It's very hard to identify with her in this situation. But I thought, what would it be like if we were in a COVID-like state of mind for 12 years? Fearful, socially outcast, not able to have contact with one another, no skin-to-skin human contact, infectious, ostracized, alone. Not for 12 months, but for 12 years. You remember what it was like when we couldn't gather for worship? This woman would have been prevented from going to the synagogue at all because she would have made people unclean. We couldn't gather for a few months. This woman hasn't been able to gather in 12 years. Physically, she was sick. Socially, she was an outcast. Relationally, she was alone. And financially, she was broke. She was a desperate woman. So she comes up to Jesus in verse 44 and touches the fringe of his garment. And what happened? Immediately, she was cured. Imagine how she felt in that moment. The bleeding had stopped. The social outcast would be no more. Her life would return to normal in an instant simply for having touched the robe of Jesus Christ. Certainly, she was, just by being there, she was breaking every ceremonial law possible. She shouldn't have been in a crowd, much less a crowd that was so tight and so thick that she would have been touching multiple people around her, therefore making them unclean. She shouldn't have touched another human being, much less a rabbi, Jesus, and yet she got the hem of his garment, and in so doing, she was healed. We'll see in a minute that it was her faith that healed her. Now, I can only speculate here, but it looks to me like her faith, I believe, was an imperfect faith. Her faith was probably mixed with a little superstition. If I can just get near the man who has healing power, then maybe that will be my lucky charm. Yet it was mixed with a true belief in this person that she knew could heal. Isn't it true that God accepts our imperfect faith when we place it in his perfection? We don't have a perfect faith, but we place our imperfect faith in a perfect God, and that's what gets all the honor and glory in this passage, as we will see in a minute. As she touched the edge of Jesus' garment, immediately the blood stopped. Twelve, Twelve years of bleeding in a moment healed. And in a paradoxical turn of events, instead of Jesus being rendered unclean by the touch of this woman, the woman was immediately made clean by the touch of Jesus. You see, Jesus came not to be under the law, but to fulfill the law. 
And in this moment, he was not going to be made unclean by the touch of the woman, but his touch on her would make her clean. Jesus supersedes the Jewish law. He came to fulfill it. Well, let's see what happens next in verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and you are, and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus didn't feel the touch. What Jesus felt was the power that went out from him, and it was healing power. It was power that responded to a faith of this woman. The word power in the Greek there is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. That there was this explosion of power that went out from Jesus that not only healed this woman physically, but as we'll see in a minute, healed her spiritually. And Jesus knew in an instant that somebody had touched her. And so he stopped. Now imagine, the crowds are loud. It's hustle and bustle. They can't even walk, take a step to the left or to the right. And all of a sudden, everything gets quiet. And Jesus quiets the crowd and he said, who touched me? Who touched me? And what does Peter do? As always, Peter sticks his foot in his mouth, right? He's like, Jesus, that's a dumb question. Like, who's bold enough to tell Jesus he just asked a a dumb question? Peter is. So Peter goes, Jesus, master, thankfully he got that right, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. I mean, a lot of people are touching you. How are you going to ask us who touched me? Well, Jesus had a purpose because he's about, he's about to draw this woman out of obscurity into a public profession of her testimony of the healing power of Christ. This was no small, obscure occurrence. This was faith that needed to be displayed. And I believe it's true of us, church, that it's easy to say, well, my faith is private. It's a private matter. My faith is, I'm just gonna kind of blend into the crowd and I'll show up on a Sunday morning and there's five or 600 other people there. Maybe I won't be noticed. And it's easy to think like the woman did. I just, just blend into obscurity and, and maybe we won't ever have to say anything. But Jesus is going to draw this woman out and allow her to give a public testimony of her faith. And that's exactly what we see happen next. Verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This is fascinating. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Now these two stories are intertwining. A great pause came on the pursuit of going to Jairus' house and this woman approaches Jesus to be healed and he not only heals her physically, but he looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's amazing that Jesus looks at this woman and he singles her out of the crowd. She wanted to blend into obscurity, but he points her out and he looks at her and after her giving testimony of Jesus' healing power, he calls her daughter. 
This woman was probably at least as old as Jesus, if not older, and yet he calls her daughter. To be a demonstration to us that she was now a daughter of God Almighty, included in the family of God. But I think it's important. Well, it's it's interesting, the choice of words here, right? When Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that's an interesting choice of words that Luke uses. Your faith has made you well. I thought it was Jesus that made her well. But you see, faith in and of itself is ineffective. It's only when we place our faith in something or in someone that faith becomes effective, right? The issue in this story is not the faith of the woman. It's the one in which she placed it. And I, say, and I, I, I would argue that throughout Scripture we see this theme uh, on more than one occasion. That it's never the quantity of our faith that's an issue, but rather the quality of the object in which we place it. Did you get that? Let me say it again. It's never the quantity of our faith that's an issue. It's the quality of the object in which we place it. You follow that? So think of the first time you flew on an airplane. I remember the first time I flew on an airplane. I think I was 12 or 13 years old. I was going to see a friend in Rhode Island. And my parents weren't going along on the trip. So my very first flight, I was a soon-to-be teenager all alone on this plane. It was quite the experience. And I don't know if you remember your first time flying, but I was hyper-focused and locked in on everything that was going on. Like, how is this thing even going to fly? I don't know that it will. And I get on the, on the plane, and I'm ushered to my seat, and I have a seat, and, and then the flight attendant comes up, and she starts explaining things. Man, I was locked in. Like, I wanted to know how the seatbelt worked. I wanted to know, oh, my, oh my, my, my seat is actually a flotation device. That's good to know. I wanted to know how to put on the life vest, and the life vest even has a little whistle in case I'm in trouble. Man, this is incredible. And I'm, I'm locked in, and the oxygen mask, and it comes down, and how I put that on, and there's a little flyer on your seatbelt, on your seat back that you can read in case you didn't get it from what she said. And I'm reading that thing, and, and I look next to me, and there's a businessman. And he's just sitting there, like he had been on hundreds of flights. He's in his business suit, he's got his briefcase, and he's just reading a magazine. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking this, I didn't say this, but I'm like, are you not paying attention to what this flight attendant says? Like, if this thing goes down, you're not going to know what to do, and apparently there's a chance it's going to go down, or they wouldn't be explaining all this to us right now. (laughs) So I am locked in, thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to Rhode Island or not, and if I don't, and I don't even know that we're flying over water, why is that important? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know what to do in case it, it tanks. Well, the object in that situation was not that I had little faith and that this guy next to me had a lot of faith. The issue was the quality of the object we were placing it in. If the, if the aircraft was mechanically sound, we were going to make it to our destination if I had a lot of faith or not. You know, in 1912, a lot of people had a lot of faith in the Titanic. And it didn't make it to its destination because the soundness of the ship was unsound. It didn't matter if people had a lot of faith or a little faith. The issue was the object in which they were placing their faith. And that's the same we're going to see in this story. Jesus looked at her and says, your faith has made you well. And that might be similar to a surgeon that walks into the room of a patient after 
having an operation and he says, the surgery worked, the surgery healed you. The surgery made you better. Well, that's true, but isn't there an agent at work behind the surgery itself that's the agent of change in that surgery room? Operating room, sorry guys. Yes, there's an agent at work that far, far supersedes the element of the surgery and that's the surgeon who's doing the work. Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's not your faith as much as the person who's able to make you well, both physically and spiritually, and that's the great physician, Jesus Christ. Your faith has made you well. That term made you well in the Greek is the word sozo. And sozo can mean it has made you well in terms of saving your soul eternally, or it can mean saving by physical deliverance. That word literally means to save you. Daughter, your faith has saved you. And for this woman, it was both and. Not only her eternal soul, but the physical issue that she had healed in in an instant. And one of the reasons that we know that, Jesus said, daughter, go in peace. He didn't say go in health. Go live a healthy life, you're healed. He said, go in peace, because he was going to give her an eternal peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that would guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. Well, now we have to get back to the original story, right? You can't help but to be on the edge of your seat and say, well, that's an interesting story, and Jesus healed this woman, but weren't we going with Jairus to his house to take care of his daughter? We'll jump back into that story, verse 49. While he was still speaking, literally, while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, declaring her healed, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Place yourself in the mind and heart of Jairus in this moment. The worst possible news came to him in this moment as somebody came to report to him, Jairus, your daughter didn't make it. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Just come on home so that we can proceed with the funeral. He would never get to see her graduate from high school. He would never get to walk her down the aisle as her dad on her wedding day. He wouldn't even get to say a final word of goodbye she was gone. How desperate, how agonizing was Jairus in that moment? And what do you think Jairus was thinking? Obviously, he was filled with grief. Obviously, he was filled with pain. Obviously, he was filled with a sense of, what am I going to do now? But I can only imagine, and this is a bit of speculation, that he was probably also a little bit angry and frustrated at this woman and at Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you were on the way to my house to heal my daughter, and this woman interrupted you. Why did you have to stop? Could you not have just invited her to come along with us, heal my daughter, and then taken care of her issue? Jesus, what were you thinking? Woman, why interrupt him? You've dealt with this for 12 years. You can deal with it another day. My daughter is dying. I can only imagine Jairus's bit of frustration at the delay and Jesus, and going to her house. And you understand that, right? 
I mean, come on. Jesus clearly had his priorities out of order, right? If these two individuals had shown up at the emergency room at the exact same time, we all know what would have happened. We have a lot of physicians in the building. A brief triage would have been done on these two individuals, and immediately the ER doctor would have tended to the little girl on her last breath. To do anything else would have been negligence. To do anything else would have been malpractice. And yet Jesus, in order to demonstrate his personal concern for an individual, this woman, and his power and authority over over death itself, he first heals the bleeding woman while letting the little girl die. One commentator said this, that Jesus was concerned, uh, Jairus was concerned about his daughter, rightfully so, and Jesus was concerned about his daughter right in front of him. Daughter, your faith has saved you. And what we take from this passage, at least one thing that we take from this passage, is that oftentimes, and you'll, you will be able to identify this, that oftentimes Jesus' yes becomes Jesus' wait, doesn't it? I knew Jesus was going to answer my prayer, and then all of a sudden something came into the picture, and now I'm experiencing what I like to call a divine delay. It's a divine delay. Jesus has a plan for me. I'm clear that it's going to happen on my timetable, and then there's a delay, and now I'm confused. Jesus, I thought you were going to answer this prayer. Jesus, I thought you were going to do it tomorrow. Jesus, I thought you were going to heal my daughter. Has this happened, ever happened to you? Has God ever orchestrated a divine delay in your life? Well, one thing I've learned in 35 years of walking with the Lord is that God's not obligated to work on my timetable. Amen? That God has a perfect plan. Jesus is here executing his perfect plan, and he, he gives us a challenge to trust me, even though you don't understand me, to place your faith and your trust and your desperation in my hands, even though you may or may not understand the direction or the timing in which I'm going. There's one thing that I've learned, and that's God is rarely early, but never late in his provision, He's rarely early because if he was, it would inhibit my faith. But he's always on time. And his provision is not according to my timetable, it's according to his. And Jesus here gives Jairus a divine delay, and now he's going to give him a divine promise. Look at verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, on hearing this news that this man brought, Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. That Jesus stood in the gap. That Jesus didn't even give Jairus a moment to process this news that he was hearing. That Jesus immediately responded to the moment of need with a word of compassion and a word of hope. And he says, Jairus, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Jesus didn't discount the reality that the girl had died. But he spoke a greater truth into that reality that the daughter would be well. And so often in our walks with the Lord, in our sanctification process, I want us to learn, church, this very principle because it's going to make your faith in God so much richer, and that's this. God brings difficult realities into our lives, and when he does, 
We need to speak a higher truth into that reality of God's personhood, his promises, and his provision. The reality isn't dismissed. The reality isn't unrecognized. The reality isn't explained away. The reality is acknowledged, but there's a greater reality on top of that reality, and that's the person, the promises, and the provision of Christ. Is that not true throughout Scripture? Scripture says, in this world you will have trouble, true, but take heart, I have overcome the world, higher truth. Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death, true, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, greater truth. Scripture says, your enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But then scripture says, but he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Higher truth. This is what God calls us to in Lamentations 3, a verse that we're all familiar with is, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing about that verse. We have it on a mug, coffee mug. It's a great verse. But the verse that precedes it says, for this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. For this truth I call to mind in the midst of an unspeakable, difficult, unspeakably difficult situation. I'm going to call the truth of God's word and the truth of his promises and the truth of who he is to my mind so that I can believe that truth in the midst of my circumstances. And I think it's important as we get to this portion of the text to remind us that this is a narrative text. It's not a declarative text. We're reading a story about real people that happened in a real place at a real time when there was a real conversation between Jesus and Jairus. But just because Jesus had a real conversation with Jairus doesn't mean we can take that conversation and apply it to our situation. I think, in fact, it would be dangerous to read this passage and begin beating ourselves up over our perceived lack of faith if God doesn't answer our prayers the way that he, we think he should. That there's something greater going on in this text. The promise doesn't necessarily apply to our situation. What he wanted for Jairus and his daughter might not be what he wants for you and your cancer. What he wanted for Jairus and his daughter might not be what he wants for you and your lost job. What he wanted for Jairus and his daughter may or may not be what he wants for you and your sick child. And these are devastating events that we come across. Life is hard, and Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Guys, there are many of us in this room right now that are weary and burdened. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. The focus is on the person and the work of Christ, not necessarily on our specific situation. Sometimes Jesus gives us rest from the storm and sometimes Jesus give us, gives us rest in the storm. But Jesus always gives us himself. And Jesus is the focus of this passage. Let's keep going and follow Jesus and his disciples to the home of Jairus. We're all waiting to see what happens. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John 
and James and the father and mother of this child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. It's interesting to see Jesus' authority even in a place that's not his home. He picked and chose who was going to be in the room in that moment. And as it were, and the other accounts in uh, Matthew and Mark uh, display this a little more clearly, but it was customary in the time that they would have professional mourners that would gather at the home of someone who had lost a loved one. The professional mourners would come and weep and wail, and, and the family would actually pay them to do so. They would weep and they would agonize and they would wail and they would play the flute. And it was obvious that there was a funeral going on in this home. So the professional weepers and wailers had come and they were in the home of Jairus. Obviously, the girl had died. We know that partly because you see their reaction when Jesus said, oh, she's just asleep. They began to laugh. A family member close to the situation probably wouldn't have been laughing in that moment. These were hired hands that were at the home. And they began to uh, look at Jesus as he drew them into this private room with the daughter. And he brought along with him three of his disciples that have made the journey with him. And it's interesting, Jesus kind of has this inner circle of disciples, right? He brings along with him Peter and James and John. And there are other times in Scripture where we see this, this interesting dynamic between Jesus and a select few of his disciples. It was these three disciples only that were permitted to be with Jesus at the transfiguration. It was these, these three disciples that Jesus, when he was praying the night before he was crucified, went further into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he invited these three gentlemen to come along and pray with him. It would be these three individuals on which the church was founded primarily. And Jesus gives them an audience to an incredible work of God in this moment. Here you have Peter, James, John, Jairus, Jairus' wife, and Jairus' daughter who laid dead in front of them. Jesus said she's only sleeping. It was a euphemism in that period of time. We see that in other places in Scripture. Jesus doesn't mean that she's not dead, only that her death is not a permanent reality as we will see in just a moment. Look at verse 54. But taking her by the hand. Now remember, it would have been ceremonially unclean to touch a woman with a flow of blood. Likewise, it would have been ceremonially unclean to touch a corpse. And yet Jesus takes the girl by the hand. And he says, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. Can you imagine being Jairus and being his wife? This is total speculation, but I kept thinking about what was Jairus's wife thinking when he left the house to go find this miracle worker? Like Jairus, our daughter, you need to be here right now. She might be on her last breath. And he goes and finds this Jesus of Nazareth that he had heard about, but now she's in the room when this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of God, lays his hand on the girl's hand and says, child, arise. 
And when Jesus said, child, arise, you know what happened? She got up. Just like when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. It was an effectual call of the Son of God that was going to happen simply because he ordered it. And he grabbed her by the hand and he said, child, arise. And she did. And his parents were amazed. I want you to see something from both of these stories, and that's this. The focus is not on the woman and her faith. The focus in this moment is not on Jairus and his faith. You don't see the three disciples going, Jairus, way to go, man. Can we get some time with you next week so you can teach us about faith? The focus was on the healer, not the healing. The focus was on the Son of God who is displaying to these individuals that he is, in fact, God. The focus for us in our times of desperation, in our times of need, in our times of crying out to Jesus, is Jesus himself. Jairus was not applauded necessarily for his faith. Jesus was applauded for being the healer. And if our faith ever draws attention to us, then we have a misplaced faith. And Jesus grabs the girl by the hand and he says, child, arise. And just as we sang about, I don't know if you picked up on it on one of the songs that we sang, but it was a foretaste of something that was to come, a foretaste of his future deliverance, a foretaste of the second coming of Christ. When all who are in Christ will hear the same effectual call and the dead in Christ will rise at the sound of his voice. 2 Thessalonians 4 says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus is going to take you by the hand and he's going to say, Child, arise. This was a familial term. It was an endearing term. It was as if Jesus grabbed her by the hand and said, baby girl, you're no longer dead. Rise. And there will be a time when he grabs us by the hand and he says, arise, because you've placed your faith and your trust in me. Now it ends in a fairly interesting way, right? After this miraculous healing of a girl, Jesus says, by the way, don't go tell anybody. It's like, are you kidding me? My daughter was dead, and now she's walking around the living room. How am I not going to tell anybody? Well, it's probably too much to go into detail, but at the time, remember I said Jesus has a timeline, and and his timeline is not always our timeline. There were some things that needed to happen before Jesus' death and crucifixion. He was as eight, Luke 8, 1 says, he was going from town to town and village to village proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he still had some towns and villages to go to. And as word got out, there was probably some speculation that the religious leaders would get word and come and arrest him before his time. And so for this moment, he said, just push pause a minute. Now, that's not what he told the demoniac man who was healed. He said, go, heal, go tell everybody. The demoniac man was in a Gentile setting This is happening in a Jewish setting, and so there were a little bit different context. There was no fear of the authorities coming and arresting Jesus in the Gentile setting, but in this setting there was. So he simply says, according to my timeline, this is going to happen. 
I'm going to preach to the different cities and villages and places. I'm going to do more healings and I'm going to speak about the kingdom of God. Because what's more important than my healing is my words that are going to bring eternal healing to many. And so give me time. But one pastor that I heard say a couple weeks ago, he said, but once the cross and once the resurrection, you go tell everybody. There's no limitations at that point. You go tell everyone. But let's get to that point first. Here in this text, we've seen Jesus' incredible power. We've seen Jesus' incredible authority, but maybe most importantly, we've seen Jesus' incredible compassion. What do these two stories that are intertwined teach us as we close? They teach us about Jesus' amazing power and compassion. They teach us that desperation should drive us to Jesus, not away from Jesus. They should drive us to him in faith and dependence. These two stories teach us that sometimes faith needs courage to step out into the open. And sometimes faith needs patience to await the divine delay, trusting that Jesus has something better according to his timetable. But most importantly, these two stories teach us that Jesus is the great healer, not only physically, but most important spiritually. You see, there came a day when the lady who was healed of her bleeding died. And there came a day when the girl who was resurrected from the dead passed away. And what was most important is their eternal healing that Jesus promised when he said, daughter, your faith has healed you and child, arise. And that can be true of you this morning. If you've never come to the place where you've placed your faith and trust in Christ and you have that level of confidence that on that day when Jesus returns, I will be one of those who rise at the effectual call of Jesus, then don't blend into obscurity in this crowd of five or 600. Jesus sees you as an individual, just like he saw the woman who had a need. And he has a word for you, and that's place your faith and your hope and your trust in the person and work of Christ, and you will be healed spiritually for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at who you are. And we, at least in our hearts right now, fall on our knees before you. That God, you are Lord and we are not. You are the King of kings and you are good and you are sovereign and you have a perfect plan for our lives. And God, we confess that sometimes we don't understand it. So help us in those moments to believe it. I believe and help my unbelief. God, we give you thanks that we can worship you in spirit and in truth and pray that we might continue to do so as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.